Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is the Alan Greenspan Doorstop Edition. On the show today, this is a long-form conversation, an Alpha Chatterbox edition, in which my colleague Matt Klein from Alphaville interviews Sebastian Malaby about his new Alan Greenspan biography called The Man Who Knew. And here is Matt joining me in the studio in New York. Matt, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Cardiff. So this book was very, very long, uh, and you are partly responsible both for the depth of its quality and detail, uh, and also for its length. Uh, what was your role in the making of this biography? So I worked uh, for Sebastian for a little over two years when he just started doing the book. I was one of the research assistants at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he's now a senior fellow, uh, the Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow. Uh, so there's a continuity with the previous Alpha Chatterbox right there. Yep. And uh, spent about two years. We we covered a whole range of stuff when I was there. I read memoirs written by Fed governors people don't remember anymore. I read Alan Greenspan's uh, PhD dissertation, which was actually a big deal because no one had really seen this before. And I don't think Greenspan had probably looked at it in you know 40 years. And I read uh, – I spent about 11 months reading every Fed – uh, FOMC meeting transcript from when Greenspan was chairman, which <laughs> Didn't, uh, in the acknowledgement in the acknowledgement section of the book, I think he said that you pulled off the uh, FOMC transcript uh, Super Bowl. What did what did he say? He I, I think what he said he called it a monetary Iron Man. I think the was monetary the Iron Man. Yeah, I knew there was some kind of a sports reference in there. Alan Greenspan, uh, you know, I think it's important for people to remember that the two thousands were a really complicated time for the global economy and obviously for the U.S. economy, uh, and that a lot of what happened after the crisis was a reassessment of Greenspan's legacy, but it seems to have happened outside the context of exactly what was going on. In other words, this narrative that, well, Greenspan should have raised interest rates in order to head off the housing bubble kind of took hold. Uh, and actually, it's a much more nuanced story. Did you talk about that? with? We Sebastian? did. I mean, it's also because there's, there's a flip side story, too, where some people say, oh, monetary policy was fine. The problem was they didn't regulate properly. And one of the interesting things that Sebastian found, this was after I left, it took him about six years to actually, you know, from start to finish to, to produce the book. Uh, they did a lot of freedom of information requests of Fed board uh, minutes. And the f- board meets once a week. They don't set interest rates. They do the regulatory things. And one of the things that they found from all this investigation, we talk about this, is that actually on the regulatory front, Greenspan was a lot more proactive than people give him credit for, which sort of makes you wonder both how this sort of conventional narrative got entrenched on the one hand, also what could have been done differently on the Fed side, if not monetary policy, if not regulatory policy. Okay. Uh, Well, here is Matt talking to Sebastian Malaby about the life and career of Alan Greenspan. Sebastian, thanks for coming. I want to start towards the end of the narrative, actually. Let's let's place ourselves in, in 2002. And I want you to give us a sense of the world that 
Greenspan was operating in and the choices that he made and the choices that maybe he could have made differently and whether or not that could have actually led to a different outcome that we had in terms of the the bubble and the financial crisis. So the background to 2002 was obviously 9-11. And the attack on the United States uh, shocked people so much that what was already a post-NASDAQ bubble, uh, falling inflation, falling growth situation, kind of fell off the cliff a bit. And inflation expectations, uh, as measured by the Michigan survey, Uh, fell to a record low right after 9-11. So in this context, the Fed became extremely preoccupied by the danger of Japan, of a sort of deflationary trap. And the Fed uh, responded by cutting interest rates aggressively. The the notion that you shouldn't keep your powder dry, because if you keep it dry uh, and you save up those interest rate cuts that you could do, um, growth will slow so much that it won't work anymore. Uh, And so in terror of the zero lower bound, um, and people forget this today, of course, we think of the zero lower bound debate as being a modern one, as a new post-2008 one, but it was very much in people's minds in 2002. So that was what Greenspan faced. And what he did was uh, to cut rates aggressively down to 1% in 2003 and uh, to hope that monetary stimulus would get the system out of uh, the shock of both the Nasdaq bubble collapsing and of the 9-11 confidence shock. So looking back with sort of the benefit of, of hindsight and, and giving us a sense, I mean, I feel like a lot of the narrative of Greenspan focuses on, or at least the modern narrative of Greenspan focuses on the idea of the crisis and the bust and the idea that you should have seen something coming. The title of your book sort of suggests that, in fact, seeing, knowing or, or being aware is, is very much a, a theme uh, of, of Greenspan that we sort of, under, it's, it's easy to underrate him. You know, to what extent was the, were, um, the policies in this whole sort of pre-crisis period, both on the monetary and on the regulatory side, things that, you know, either looking back, we can say Greenspan should have done something a lot differently or looking back, we can say, well, this, you know, because of all the other global forces, whether we talk about, you know, the global savings glut or the shortage of safe assets or the commodity boom or whatever, it wasn't something that really could have been dealt differently. Well, you're right that, I mean, the title of the book is The Man Who Knew. And that is because I do think uh, that he knew that finance could be very unstable. And he was particularly aware of this in the 2000s when in the transcripts, uh, as you know well, Matt, um, uh, he was discussing financial instability quite openly with his colleagues. So what he decided to do about that was to essentially take a couple of shots at it through regulation, uh, but to ignore it on the monetary side, on the interest rate side. On the regulatory side, what he did was, first of all, he uh, did try to pass um, effective regulation on crazy subprime mortgages. There were certain insurance products that were being bundled into these subprime mortgages, which were clearly abusive. And in late 2001, the Fed adopted new rules uh, to limit those. Uh, Greenspan also went out and testified uh, with the backing of the White House in favor of limiting the size of Fannie and Freddie, because he saw that as the central you know, source of systemic risk at the time. Uh, And what happened is that neither of these regulatory uh, efforts came to anything. The new mortgage rules were adopted, but they were uh, easily circumvented by the industry, which just tweaked the products and carried on as if nothing had happened. The Fannie and Freddie uh, push for regulation for limits on portfolio size was beaten back by a barrage of TV ads that the mortgage giants 
put up to just warn members of Congress that if they sided with Greenspan, uh, they would be facing a tough re-election. So uh, Greenspan tried. He knew there was potentially trouble. He tried with regulation, and that failed. He did not try with interest rates, and that's where I think he was at fault. Uh, because knowing now that regulation was not going to work, uh, and I think he frankly knew it as well. I mean, he was trying, but he didn't. He was too realistic to assume that regulation would really uh, prevent excess leverage. Um, he he didn't take the next step, which is okay. So regulation won't work, so we better use interest rates. You know, it's interesting because, of course, that's essentially the opposite of of sort of the conventional wisdom now that oh, the the Fed was fine on the monetary front, but it was on regulation that it couldn't that it should have done more and chose not to. And this is sort of the it's interesting because you're basically saying it's the exact reverse that they really tried in regulation that didn't work, and so in the absence of this, you know, more monetary tightening would have been appropriate. Yeah, I mean, in the five years when I was researching the book, I would say to people, I'm writing a book about Alan Greenspan, and they would, the typical thing would be, you know, fantastic monetary policy. I mean, just look, inflation was, you know, came down, it was very low variance, it was on target in the 2000s, you know, perfect interest rates. Uh, but on the regulatory side, boy, did he mess up. And that's the standard line. And I, exactly as you say, I have the opposite view, which is that, on regulation, he tried, and regulation never, frankly, is very easy to implement, particularly in the United States, where you have this massively fragmented regulatory structure with all this alphabet soup of agencies. So when, for example, on subprime mortgages, Greenspan and the Fed passed new rules, the supervision of the non-bank mortgage originators who had to obey those rules, that was being done by the FTC, which doesn't actually have boots on the ground to go and supervise. So, you know, I think he tried on regulation and it was never going to work. So I don't share the standard criticism of Greenspan on that. But, you know, the flip side of that is if you don't use regulation, you better use monetary policy. So the counterpoint to this, which I think is something you were implying in your initial answer, is that the economy at the time was very weak. Inflation was so slow. People worried about, you know, hitting zero bound. It was an extremely rough jobless recovery. Would it have been possible for, you know, realistically, I mean, talking about Fed independence is, you know, it's in, in the law, but it's not necessarily, you know, in practice is, you know, how that plays out is a tough question. How realistic would it have been to imagine Greenspan marshalling the committee to pursue a, a meaningfully tighter policy back then? Well, in my view, 2002 is the wrong year to peg that dilemma. So I think in 2002, you know, in the one year or so after um, 9-11, it was reasonable to be fearful of the Japanese trap. Mm -hmm. And after all, the real estate bubble we now know um, peaked in 2006, early 2007. So 2002 was pretty early. And I think it was fine at the time to run very loose policy for 2002, 2003. Uh, by the time you get to 2003 and into four, then the argument changes because you've escaped the deflation threat. Japan is not happening. You know, inflation... Uh, in 2003, in the second half, was below target. It was around 1.5% or so. You know, but by 2004, it was picking up again. So that's the point where I think Greenspan should have had a different monetary policy. And I think he could clearly have done it. I mean, not for nothing was he called the maestro. He had complete control over the FOMC, the Interest Rate Setting Committee. And if he'd wanted to, you know, he could have raised interest rates faster. And also he could have done it uh, with less forward guidance. I think that's a crucial part of this discussion. Uh, it's one thing to hold the policy rate, the short-term rate, low. It's another thing to guide people about the longer rates uh, because that just incentivizes leverage. 
So I want to get into this more because it's interesting that Greenspan's defense and, and a lot of, not just his defense, but the defense that a lot of people make of the way monetary policy was conducted in this period is that they did raise rates in 2004. They raised them you know, relatively quickly, but long rates didn't move. And you can argue this was a fault of forward guidance or fault of excess savings or from other countries or what have you. But uh, I mean, that is an, a claim that people make, which is that, oh, they did try. It just didn't work. You know, you could say there's sort of an analogy to there to the regulatory moves um, preventing, you know, particularly abusive mortgage projects that just didn't work. I mean, what what is, what is your take on that? Well, so if I remember correctly, around the middle of 2004, the Fed began to tighten and it tightened uh, by 25 basis points per meeting. And this was extremely clearly telegraphed that everybody in the markets understood because of the Fed's language uh, that it would be 25 basis points per meeting and not more. And it seems to me that, you know, um, it's not my conjecture, it's based on reporting and talking to people on Wall Street, mm-hmm. that when you are running uh, a term transformation book, you know, you're borrowing short and lending long, uh, if you're told that that short uh, you know, the the borrowing short part of your trade is stable because although it's going to rise by 25 basis points per meeting, it won't rise more than that. I mean, remember in the cycle in 1994, at one point, the Fed raised by 75 basis points at one meeting. Right. That would be the kind of shock that, you know, in 1994 did blow up hedge funds and leveraged uh, trading books. Uh, that chapter of my book is called Hurricane Greenspan. So, you know, the Fed had the power to deter Wall Street from taking massive leverage. But by offering this forward guidance, uh, it failed to do that. Now, there is this legitimate um, parallel explanation for why there was the Greenspan conundrum. Why did long rates not go up when short rates were being raised? In fact, they fell. And that's where Ben Bernanke made his famous speech uh, about uh, the savings glut and blamed it on this excess of uh, foreign savings coming into the U.S. and driving down long-term rates. Now, that is true. I mean, uh, we know that uh, Chinese savings did have an influence on the yield curve. Warnock and Warnock uh, is the paper I cite in the book which quantifies that. Uh, And I think, if I remember right, it was sort of an 80 basis point difference on the 10-year yield. So there was an effect there. But just because there's an effect from foreign savings coming in, it does not follow that the central bank is impotent. The central bank can push back against that stuff. And you could argue precisely if there is a savings glut, the central bank ought to be tightening and using forward guidance to counteract that, not just sitting there saying passively, oh my goodness, we can't help this. You know, the world is difficult. There's a savings glut. No. And the irony is that in the 1970s, Uh, Greenspan, as a private consultant, criticized the Fed for sitting there passively as the yield curve was distorted by the then new arrival of Fannie and Freddie uh, into the system, which was changing the way that uh, uh, long long mortgage rates were behaving, and said, you know, the Fed should be pushing back against this. And the same was true for him. So I guess the big question is why they didn't then? I mean, if if the tools were there... And the arguments were reasonable for doing it. Why did they not act? So Greenspan was the man who knew. He was not the man who acted. And you're right. You're asking the uh, the big question. And the answer, I think, is primarily uh, that intellectually, the Fed got caught into this inflation-targeting straitjacket. And it was partly a political thing, you know, that Paul Volcker, by defeating inflation, had created political legitimacy for the central bank Uh, to raise rates in the pursuit of stable prices. 
there was no such societal consensus in favor of using interest rates to have stable asset prices. And Greenspan didn't want to challenge that societal understanding. I think he could have done because he had the status to do so. Uh, so in my conclusion, I argue that, you know, whereas it wasn't his fault that the alphabet super regulatory agencies made it impossible to do the regulation, uh, there was, you know, power over interest rates were his. Uh, you know, he's one of the most imperial and powerful chairmen of all time. And so there's no escaping the fact that he should have had a different monetary policy and, and he was wrong. And it's not so much that he fell into the same inflation targeting consensus so much as he was concerned that the political independence that the Fed had would be was constrained to to go outside. Is that a fair way of putting it? Or I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think that ironically he slipped into the inflation targeting consensus, even though he didn't begin as somebody who loved it. I mean, in the nineteen nineties, as again you you know very well, you know, other people were much keener than he was on an inflation target. And in fact, others were keen on an explicit public inflation target, which he refused to go with. And he was always, throughout this period, emphasizing that, well, maybe asset prices should enter into the evaluation. That was actually a quote from him in 2004 in the transcripts, uh, uh, which I believe you unearthed. Uh, uh, so, I mean, the the point is that he wasn't a straightforward inflation targeter, but he kind of ran with the pack. He did that partly because politically it was easy, partly because he was captured by his own reputation. He didn't want to be unpopular by bursting the bubble. And maybe a bit of his personality plays into that, right? So this is somebody who loved the adulation. And maybe because he was a shy person, he didn't want to confront society's expectations too aggressively. So I think this is a good point to transition back to the beginning of how Greenspan got to be where he was. I mean, you mentioned that he was afraid of confrontation, also had a very keen desire to be liked. You know, you make a pretty compelling case that a lot of this has to do with his upbringing. Um, you know, why don't you tell us about kind of how that how that led to his personality? Sure. Well, Greenspan grew up in a slightly unusual way. He was born in 1926 and uh, grew up in the 30s. And I guess unusually for that time, his parents got divorced uh, when he was very young. And so when he was three, his father disappeared and uh, his mother was left there with this one child and she never remarried. So uh, he was the only sort of male figure in her life. Uh, no other husband, no other children. Uh, and she doted on him as you would expect. And there is some, you know, psychiatric theorizing or sort of Freudian stuff, which one could take with a pinch of salt. That, you know, that level of maternal attention creates a special character, that it gives you, as Freud said, the feeling of a conqueror. And so Greenspan was caught between this sense that he was special because his mother doted on him, and at the same time, a shyness, a diffidence. Relative to his mother, he was much less bubbly and outgoing. And he always thought of himself as a sideman, that was his phrase. Um, in other words, he was off to the side at a party. He was not at the center of the party. And I think that combination of knowing that he was great because his mother had doted on him, but not being able to get the appropriate amount of adulation because he was shy forced him to get the adulation another way. And he did it through mastery of data and numbers and, and 
making a lot of money very early on and then acquiring enormous political power. And so by doing well at stuff, working hard, being diligent, getting ahead, he built himself up into a position where he got the adulation he felt he deserved. And I think it was therefore extraordinarily difficult for him uh, once he was at the peak of his power to contemplate risking all that status uh, which he had worked so long to accumulate. And this is a very conscious thing on his part. I, I mean, it, there's a there's a wonderful anecdote in, in the book. I can't remember who it was who said it, but they described him as a, as a creeper where he would go to, or he insisted on being at every you know Washington social event, but didn't seem to actually enjoy being there, even though he felt like he had to be there. I mean, what, that seems like sort of fits in with this. Yes, this was a description of Greenspan in the 1970s uh, when he was the uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Gerald Ford White House. And Greenspan would show up unfailingly at these A-list parties in Washington, but as you say, didn't look as if he was having much fun. And so the question was, why was he bothering to do this? And I think it was partly a desire to get the spotlight that he was due, given his powerful position in 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 the political ladder that is Washington. It's probably also, and I think this come is something that I thought about more and more actually since I finished the book, oddly, is that a key to Greenspan is his political savvy, that he was a brilliant uh, economic statistician, but also a fantastic and mesmerizing political actor. And showing up at those parties and being available to people, making friends, you know, being making friends is actually the wrong phrase for Greenspan, but uh, but making connections and being accessible and building up alliances was key to being the powerful figure in Washington that he then later transpired to became. So looking at the intellectual side, the interesting thing about Greenspan is that he comes of age in a period when you have the sort of post-war Keynesian consensus is at the all-time high. Everyone's thinking about fine-tuning and having a big government and you know we've ended the problem of, of we're never going to have the Great Depression again, that sort of thing. And, and making very large mathematical models to basically predict what's going to happen. He goes in a very different direction. Uh, you know, how, did, how did that happen? Well, it is an interesting and intriguing story, right? He goes to New York University in 1945 when you know, the GI Bill is paying for this generation of ex-servicemen to attend college. It must have been the most pro-government generation of American college students. And Greenspan showed up there and emerged as a sort of Hayekian libertarian. How did that happen? Well, you know, I explored various uh, theories about that. Was there a particular professor that influenced him or something? And it turns out that the best one, uh, you know, as best I could, I, I, as I could reconstruct it, and I did find uh, one Greenspan contemporary from NYU who had a clear memory of this stuff, who later became a professor there. Uh, and his... With his help, I came to the view that Greenspan became this libertarian in a completely Keynesian era because he was this loner individualist who had, you know, as a child been an autodidact and also musically an autodidact. He'd spent hours and hours by himself practicing musical instruments before becoming a professional musician for a bit. And that loner mentality, sort of the picking up of intellectual pieces of the puzzle by himself, is what led him to a place that was completely not in keeping with the zeitgeist. 
And in some ways, that that's what makes him, you know, a great economist later, that, you know, he was able to make the productivity call in 1996 and be completely against the conventional wisdom when he said that productivity was actually accelerating way more than the data showed. He could do that because he was his own man. And I think the Hayekian early phase demonstrates that clearly. And you also make the point in the book that in addition to sort of the, not necessarily ideological, but sort of a different view of, of the role of the state that he has in the, in the late 40s and early 50s, he also happens to be at a place that you know there's this empirical tradition of just trying to figure out what the relationships are and and uh he arguably gets this big start with a sort of a classic demonstration of this skill set uh with the korean war he's doing research you know that's a that's a great story can you kind of explain that very briefly what happened there well um the korean war it was clear to greenspan was of great relevance to his clients and the clients were partly steel companies partly auto companies. Uh, I think already Alcoa, the aluminum giant, was in the picture. And so they had a huge interest in knowing what was going to happen to metal prices. And what Greenspan did was that he tried to figure out how much the Korean War was going to increase demand for key metals, which metals, how much. Um, and to figure that out, to figure out basically the military consumption of metal, uh, he had to do this extraordinary sleuthing exercise where um, of course, in a time of war, uh, the Pentagon was not going to release exactly how many planes it had, how many aircraft there might be in a squadron even, uh, how many you know were being shot down, therefore how many they had to replace. All of that stuff was not public. But what you could do is go find testimony from Air Force commanders from before the war, see what they said then about their military procurement and how many aircraft they had and what went into it, and then find sort of engineering manuals which described how to manufacture some of the the aircraft that uh, the military were using. And then from all these different sources, piece together an estimate of what the consumption of metal was. And by looking at newspaper reports of sorties flown in uh, in the Korean War, figure out, okay, so how many planes is that? How many likely to be shot down? What's the attrition rate? How many accidents are there even in non-combat training? Mm -hmm. So by taking information from everywhere and then putting it all together in a painstaking fashion, Greenspan was able to provide, I'm sure not the perfect answer to metal trends and what was going to happen to prices because of the war, but he had the best answer anyone had, which of course made him a star uh, among his clients. So one of the interesting things about this period that very much relates to this is that Greenspan, contrary to sort of the popular myth that exists around him now, a myth that he partly propagated himself, that you know, big believer in efficient markets and you can't know when asset prices are wrong, he put his money where his mouth was. He, um, I mean, he had a he traded on the commodity, the metal commodities during this period. I mean, that's a that's a fascinating finding that I don't think was really anywhere else. But you know, what what did he learn from that? I mean, how how did he get involved and what was his experience like when he was doing this? Well, um, his estranged father, who had abandoned him as a child, uh, had a sort of ne'er-do-well career in finance and would trade a bit in the commodities market based on sort of pattern recognition, trend-following type of strategies. And so Greenspan, I think, was aware of that. His father had tried to persuade him as an adult to go into business with him. He'd refused. But he'd become interested, as I think a lot of people were in the in the 50s, in studying patterns in prices when the first hedge fund, this is going back to a previous book I wrote, but when the first hedge fund was set up in 1949, the founder 
believed that the way that he would generate alpha would be through uh, following charts. Um, and it turned out he made money by a completely different strategy. But but charts were very much in the zeitgeist of the 50s. And Greenspan was one of the charters. And he did some pretty obvious things. So, for example, he would say to himself, okay, so we know that a metal price can go up theoretically as much as it wants. There's no limit to how high it could be. But we do know there's a limit on the downside. It can't go below zero. And that's true of grains as well, any commodity, obviously. Uh, so anytime a price collapses way below the norm, if you buy, if you go long, you buy futures contracts going long, you're not going to lose that much because it can't go below zero. On the other hand, if it takes off because there's some shortage that suddenly occurs, you could make way more on the upside than you're going to lose on the downside. So it's an asymmetric bet. And even without really knowing the specifics of what's going on with wheat prices or pork belly futures or steel or whatever commodity you're trading, this is an asymmetric bet. And if you do it enough times, you're going to make money. So he would do this kind of thing. He did rather well with this. He then bought a seat on the commodity exchange and he would show up at lunchtime, stealing 15 minutes from his consulting work, not wanting he was extremely conscious about how he allocated his time. And he would talk to the crazy traders yelling and screaming next to him who had no you know, statistical knowledge of what they were trading. And they, he would say, well, so how do you know you should be buying just then? And the guy would say, well, I, I felt the market. And Greenspan would say, you felt the market? I mean, you, what, you, like you, you put your hand on the wall and felt, what, what do you do? What does that mean? Uh, and the sheer sort of, uh, you know, intellectual mystification led him to the view that you know, prices are driven by sentiment in the short term, by how many people are screaming at what in the pit. And that sentiment is a reflection of all kinds of things, you know, um, short term dislocations in markets because a particular procurement, uh, you know, a particular company, a particular automaker suddenly needs a whole lot of steel. So they suddenly buy and that that knocks the price off where it would normally be. Um, so he came to appreciate at a kind of very much personal level, because actually when he bought the seat on the commodity exchange, he didn't make that much money. I think he, he quit that for after a bit. But he did appreciate that markets were full of, you know, they're only as efficient as people are rational, and that's not 100%. So the other big thing intellectually during this period is, aside from, you know, getting a chance to put his sort of empirical training into practice with think, thinking about the the impact of or procurement on steel demand or getting a chance to actually see how markets really work and get outside of actually the theoretical framework for the efficient markets hypothesis hadn't been invented yet. So he didn't have to worry about you know unlearning that. But the other big thing was he started working on uh, what would eventually become his, his PhD dissertation. And I think one of the big revelations in this book is that you actually found this dissertation and were able to incorporate it because basically no one really knew where it had been up until uh, you found it in his office. And I mean, there are several really big, interesting ideas in there that sort of inform a lot of the themes of his later work and life and career. You know, what what are those? What, what were the sort of big things you found? Well, you're right. I mean, the discovery of the PhD thesis was a great moment because uh, friends of mine at the Wall Street Journal had tried to get a hold of um, of the PhD. They'd gone to New York University Library, which had awarded the PhD and said, you know, we want a copy. And the librarian said, well, it's missing. And they said, what do you mean? You know, it's supposed to have all of them. And they said, it's missing. We said, it's missing. 
And so after trying pretty hard, um, I can tell this story in an FT podcast because the end of the story is that the Wall Street Journal didn't get what they wanted. It was a, not a reporting success. Uh, they went away empty-handed and they always wondered, you know, what was in that missing thesis. I ran into uh, one of the journalists who'd been trying very hard to get hold of it years later when I was doing the research for this book. And uh, he said, so, you know, have you got the thesis? And I said, yes. And his eyes kind of lit up. And uh, he said, well, I don't expect you to say what's in it yet, but just tell me, is it interesting? And I said, yes. <laughs> and, and the reason it's interesting, the big idea in there, which has obviously massively ironic implications for Greenspan's later, later tenure at the Fed, is essentially the sort of the Tobin's Q idea. Tobin got the, James Tobin got the Nobel Prize later, partly for this idea and had no doubt expressed it in much more elegant mathematics than Greenspan ever did. But Greenspan was there first. And the idea essentially was that asset prices drive the economic cycle through two channels. The first is the familiar wealth effect. You know, consumers uh, seeing their portfolios rise in value, feel wealthier, they go out and spend more, and that's going to drive the economy into an upswing. Equally and more powerfully, Companies uh, seeing that assets are being valued more highly will go and create more assets, i.e. they will invest. So if you think about the example of an uh, office building, if the office building suddenly goes up by 20%, guess what? All kinds of real estate developers will try and build more offices because you can sell it for 20% more. And the same is true of setting up a new company. If you can sell it for more, you're more likely to create the company in the first place. So investment, and this was Greenspan's point in a paper he, he first presented in 1959, investment and consumption are fundamentally linked to asset prices. And therefore, a central bank cannot, must not, should on no account ignore cycles in asset prices. It must respond to a bubble. And he held this view with such passion that, you know, observing that the central bank had failed in the 1920s to act against the bubble that eventually burst in 1929, Greenspan said, you know, this is why central banks are no good. They do not respond to asset price bubbles. And therefore, we should have the gold standard. We shouldn't have central banks at all. So the man who later embodied the central bank thought there shouldn't be a central bank. And the reason he came to that view was that he thought that asset prices were the key thing you had to respond to, which is exactly what he didn't do later. So, I mean, the ironies were just mind-blowing. Right, and this wasn't an immature view. I mean, he was in his 30s at the time he wrote this. This was something he clearly... Yes, in 1959, when he presented the paper, he was 33. If I remember correctly, there's another funny bit towards the end of that paper, um, or funny in retrospect anyway, where he talks about how he's concerned that the forces that led to the Great Depression, he thinks, might come back where looking at the 1950s, there is a big increase in household debt, admittedly from very low levels, but still a very big increase in corporate debt. You see this big increase in stock price, again, from very low levels. He thinks, oh, are we going to repeat this? That didn't happen, obviously. I'm wondering to what extent do you think this might have affected you know, his later confidence and ability to say like, oh, well, asset prices are, you know, we're clearly about to have a bust or, or something along those lines. I don't know. I mean, um, you know, we, you know, debated this at the time. I mean, um, you know, I, I feel, by the way, I want to I want to reiterate something I think you've announced already. But um, Matt, you contributed enormously to the understanding of all this stuff when uh, you were helping with the research. And I remember debating this with you. I think that in the end, I didn't pick up on that 
end part of the paper uh, in the way that you picked up on it. And the reason is, I think that there are so many more proximate causes for Greenspan's reluctance to prick bubbles later on that mm. he, by you know the time he became Fed chairman in 1987, uh, had moved on in many ways. And you know, I think maybe a pivotal moment in this was when he was advising President Ford and told him that on no account should he bail out the city of New York. And, and, and that famous headline, Ford to city drop dead, could have been written, Greenspan to city drop dead. It was really Greenspan's idea, his advice, not to bail out New York. Now, that proved to be completely untenable. And in the end, the Ford administration did provide assistance uh, to New York. And that was Greenspan's education in the in the politics of this stuff. And I think by the late 70s, he'd really given up on the idea that you shouldn't bail anything out. And that, you know, and relatedly, your point about, okay, so your forecast can be wrong, therefore, you don't know if there's a bubble. I think he went through so many cycles between 1959, when he wrote that paper, and then when he became Fed chairman in 1987, uh, that there are other things going on. Fair enough. From his professional development, you also at the same time have his emergence as a political actor very gradually, initially through what not an obvious route, which is by becoming part of Ayn Rand's inner circle. How did that happen? And, you know, what were, I mean, he ended up becoming very close to her. And in some ways, you know, you argue that he, she was sort of like a second mother to him. Um, you know, wh- wh- tell us that, that whole story from when they met in the 50s. Yeah, so what happened was, um, you know, Greenspan uh, was married twice. Um, the first time was rather briefly. But his first wife, although she exited his immediate life rapidly, she had a lasting effect on him because she introduced him to Ayn Rand. And this, um, I'm not going to remember exactly uh, how old he was, but he was probably in his late 20s um, when he met her. And uh, at first, she didn't like him. He seemed lugubrious. He always sort of looked dark and down and had black suits and um, was not sufficiently, I think, um, you know, ebullient in his praise for her, perhaps. Uh, and um, uh, he likewise felt that, you know, he came out of a sort of logical positivist uh, philosophic background and he believed that, you know, you couldn't know anything for sure. And she, on the other hand, was sure about everything. And because of the force of her intellect and sort of the charisma of her personality, he was persuaded by her that actually logical positivism was wrong, that you some things um, you probably could know and you shouldn't get hung up on this doubting everything. And he that kind of gave him the confidence to to rise out of the statistics, which he had mastered, and generalize more about how society should be ordered. And so he started to think about bigger questions that he had shunned before. So things like, you know, what is the role of antitrust? And he came out and said most of it should be repealed. He adopted a series of radical libertarian positions which were new for him because essentially he had confined himself deliberately to statistics and to data and had been reluctant to build a real world view. And from that worldview, he then became interested in politics. And another of the great research excitements I had in this whole process was discovering 
the series of lectures that Alan Greenspan delivered in uh, 63, 64, when he was, uh, I guess, uh, uh, in his late 30s. And when he was basically Ayn Rand's chief economist by this point. And he, at the end of these speeches, which I discovered in the basement of an Ayn Rand acolyte, the message was, you know, Barry Goldwater, the Republican nominee in 1964, uh, needs to be supported. Not that he's libertarian enough, in Greenspan's view, liberty, you know, Greenspan thought he was, you know, a bit soft. Uh, but uh, but he ended those lectures with an explicit appeal to support Goldwater. And that was Greenspan emerging from his sort of shy statistician's chrysalis and becoming a political butterfly. So it's also interesting in, that in, in light of the support of, of Goldwater and not being conservative or not being libertarian enough. I mean, this was also the same time when Greenspan was writing these furious letters to the editor. I think if I remember correctly, he was wrote some letter criticizing the New York Times book review of Atlas Shrugged, saying they were, I don't remember the exact language, you probably know it better, but I think something along the lines of, you know, subhuman or something for not failing to appreciate the the mastery. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable that someone like that, who at this point, as we said, was in his thirties, would, you know, somehow turn into the smooth political operator who everybody liked many, many years later. Arguably the key moment in the beginning of that transition is when he started working for a politician who actually won, uh, which was Nixon. I guess it was 1967 when he joined the campaign. So how did how did that happen? How did he get introduced to, to Nixon? Because it's not an obvious fit when you think about their records. Well, well, Greenspan, through Ayn Rand Salon, he'd met a young professor from Columbia University uh, called Martin Anderson. And they'd become firm friends. They were both libertarians. And Martin Anderson was different in that he was more politically ambitious. And so Anderson got involved in Nixon's campaign very early when Nixon was just considering a run in 67. And Anderson brought Greenspan in at first to write a paper on abolishing the draft, the military draft, which was a classic libertarian issue, obviously. And Anderson and Greenspan produced this paper saying that the military would be you know, more efficient and also that there would be labor market benefits if you stop the military depending on you know, underpaid conscripts. And of course, Nixon, when he became president, adopted that policy. And so Greenspan's first political recommendation actually did become law. But it was through Anderson and through this libertarian route that he got introduced to Nixon and then was recruited into Nixon's campaign. And then what happens is absolutely fascinating because the person who really adopted him as an ally is none other than Patrick Buchanan, right? The uh, populist presidential candidate from uh, the Republican primaries in 96, the winner of the New Hampshire primary, I remember vividly. And Buchanan, who was sort of an Irish political brawler, coming from a very different perspective. I mean, I don't know if you'd call Buchanan libertarian. I think I'd call him, you know, sort of pugnacious nationalist. I don't know what. You know, sort of, perhaps. Yeah, proto-Trumpian, right. And he adopted Greenspan, persuaded Nixon to uh, bring Greenspan closer and closer to the center. And by going to visit Buchanan when I was doing the research and talking my way into Buchanan's basement, where there's a very large collection of guns, um, I was shown the memos that Greenspan wrote to Nixon during that campaign. And I said, oh, can I perhaps just get a copy? And, you know, when I was told yes... I leapt on the whole thing, photographed the whole lot, and was, you know, incredibly excited. And when you read this series of memos that Greenspan wrote to Nixon from 67 through the end of the campaign in 68, 
what you see in real time is this transformation of a libertarian ideologue into a political operative. He begins by offering economic and sort of philosophic advice about how Nixon should stand up for freedom in all things. Then he starts sort of tempering the message and saying, well, how can you sell this freedom message? And by the end of the campaign, he's forgotten about freedom completely. And he's talking about messaging, political spin. He's become, by the way, the polling analyst for Nixon. Because Greenspan ran an economic consulting firm with a computer, a mainframe computer, he was able to crunch the numbers from regional opinion polls and give the candidate advice on how he should position his message in different parts of the country. We know, by the way, what happened to that, right? The Southern strategy uh, emerged from that, not that Greenspan himself would have been the supporter of that race-baiting strategy, but he did provide some of the data for it. But anyway, that is the transition. That is the moment when Greenspan understands that he has to serve not just his principles, his philosophic principles, he has to serve his principle, which is Richard Nixon. He has to get the guy elected. And he throws himself into that in a big way. And uh, that is the key to his politicization. So one of the moments in the book that you wrote that directly contradicts, and there's a lot more evidence to suggest that you're right on this, than what directly contradicts Greenspan's own recollection is that towards, I think it's in the summer of 68, Nixon has this meeting of all his senior advisors off in Montauk, and he's very angry. And according to Greenspan, that's when he decides he doesn't want to work for Nixon if Nixon wins. He's supposedly because Nixon is cursing and saying bad things about the people who are opposed to him. You've pretty persuasively argued that that's, I mean, that meeting occurred, but that that's not a credible explanation for why Greenspan actually didn't get a job in the, in the Nixon administration. What, what, what's the real reason? So, I mean, first of all, I mean, the reason why I think this is important is that Greenspan's image, his self-image, what most people think of him is we all think he's this technocrat. And the truth is he's also very, very political and ambitious. And so his own version of the 68 Nixon campaign, as you say, is that you know, he goes to this meeting in Montauk. Nixon reveals his Jekyll and Hyde personality, suddenly spewing racial epithets all over the place. And Greenspan thinks, whoa, this is not the president I would like to work for. I'm going to disengage from this whole process um, because, you know, I have my principles. I'm a technocrat. I'm not going to go work for somebody like that. Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is that Greenspan stayed engaged in the Nixon campaign way beyond that meeting offered extremely political advice to Nixon uh, for the next few months. And at the end of the uh, process, when Nixon has been elected and there's the transition and we're now into sort of November, December of 68 and the personnel team is picking who's going to have which job, Greenspan, and this is from a memo discovered in the, uh, in the archives, uh, Greenspan tells the personnel person um, well, you know, I would go into the administration, but only for such a senior job that I'm too nervous to even say what it is. And he evidently meant either Treasury Secretary uh, or maybe Budget Director, but not less than that. Because Greenspan was running a successful economic consulting business, he was making a ton of money, he had a very good life, and he was not going to give it up for nothing. So basically, the truth is, you know, it wasn't about principles and being a technocrat, not wanting to get his hands dirty. It was simply that from a sort of career and ambition and financial perspective, it wasn't the right move for Greenspan to go into the White House. And in fact, as you alluded to, he continued to work with Nixon 
in several substantive ways after he was elected, even if he didn't have an official job. I mean, one of the really striking things, and it sort of ties into this broader theme of Fed independence and the relationship between elected officials and the central bank, is what happened with Arthur Burns, who was Nixon's mentor when he was at Columbia, and uh, Nixon administration and the role that Greenspan played in that. So that I mean, one of, that was a very striking thing. Why don't you, you know, what, what was what happened there, and what was the reason that Greenspan got involved? So I think you're you're teeing me up here for one of the stories that um, uh, you know Greenspan does not like in this uh, book, and he tried many times to persuade me that it never happened. But the uh, contemporary documentary evidence, um, as I'll explain, uh, is so compelling that um, I wasn't willing to take his word for it. Uh, I did say in the book that he says this didn't happen, but I think the the archival evidence suggests strongly that it did. So what happened was. In 1971, Richard Nixon was already obsessed with the 72 re-election fight and determined that the Federal Reserve should cut interest rates to create strong economic growth leading into the 72 election. And Arthur Burns, the Fed chairman whom Nixon had appointed as a loyalist, was not playing ball. And so Nixon wanted to force the Fed into cutting rates to help his political prospects. And the way they did that is Nixon and his team, including some people who later went to jail for the Watergate stuff, went off on a on the presidential yacht, the Sequoia, and they cooked up this plan that they would essentially kneecap Arthur Burns, the Fed chairman, by leaking a story to the media saying that Arthur Burns was on the one hand calling for a wage and price freeze for Americans, but at the same time, demanding a 50% pay rise for himself. Now, the first thing about the price freeze was true. And Burns was saying that. Everyone knew that. The second thing that Burns wanted for himself, a 50% pay hike, was complete fiction. He just made it up. And they leaked it to the press. And then when the journalist showed up at the White House briefing the next day and said to the White House press spokesman, so is this true? The spokesman refused to deny it. So then the story really had legs. And Arthur Burns was naturally horribly upset. His reputation was being dragged through the mud. He was beside himself. And at this point, the White House reached out to Greenspan, who was close to the White House, but also close to Arthur Burns, and said, you should go speak to Burns and explain to him to be reasonable. Reasonable, of course, meant be supportive of Nixon. And Greenspan says, you know, he didn't get the call. He never would have done it. He doesn't remember it and so on. But there is a handwritten note from Charles Colson, who went to jail later, saying, you know, in the morning, called Greenspan, made the following three points, he should speak to Arthur Burns. And then there's a bit of a gap. And then the notes say, Greenspan calls back, reports he's done this, done this, done this. And then on the White House tapes, you see Nixon uh, talking to his chief of staff, uh, Holderman, about what Greenspan has done. Uh, Nixon refers to Greenspan as a friend in New York. It's the most bizarre thing, right? So so Nixon is having himself tape recorded and somehow he thinks he can fool the tape recorder by referring to people by their place, not by their name. And it's the whole thing of, it's it's the 1970s, right? People have figured out they've got these new gizmos, they've got tape recorders, they've got photocopiers. They have no idea yet how dangerous these things are and how historians are going to use them. And they think they can fool us by saying, our friend in New York, well, no, sorry. Anyway, um, so so Greenspan essentially went to Burns and said, you know, this is Washington, this is politics. If you want them to stop this kind of stuff, 
you know, you need to, you need to help them. And you can just look in the record what happened next. I mean, monetary policy shifted. And in the first half of 1972, because of that shift, uh, the economy grew uh, by annualized 8%, more than 8%, actually. So there was a way unsustainable uh, splurge of stimulus that happened after this episode. So I think it's a fair conclusion right there in the data that Greenspan helped to subjugate the central bank that he later empowered through his maestro status. And just jumping ahead a little bit in the chronology, there's sort of a fascinating parallel here with when Greenspan, relatively early on in his tenure, he had been appointed as in part because of the view that he was a Republican loyalist. You have George H.W. Bush administration. Uh, they end up clashing with him tremendously, arguably for similar sorts of reasons. It works out very differently, but there's a very interesting you know, tension there. I'm actually just going to, you know, stay with the story because it's interesting. I mean, what, what happened with, you know, Dick Darman and, and uh, Nick Brady and, and, and that whole episode, because it's really interesting to see like how Greenspan's changed or at least how his behavior changed when he was in um, Burns's position. Right. So this, you're right, is, is, is fascinating because Greenspan um, was appointed as a loyalist, a uh, political loyalist, and yet he did stand up to a Republican president, George H.W. Bush. And he ran policy pretty tight after the 91 recession, so much so that he was surprised by how weak the recovery was. He, I think if he had known ahead of time how much balance sheets had been impaired by the commercial real estate bust, he would have run interest rates a lot lower. Growth would have been stronger. And actually, Bush would have beaten Clinton in the 1992 election. So when George H.W. Bush was mad at him uh, in 1991-92. There was a reason, right? Policy was very tight. What happened in that period was that um, George H.W. Bush would attack Greenspan on the Fed occasionally in public. His his team, his economic team, would be way more vicious. I mean, the most extreme came when Richard Darman, the budget director, put it about in Washington that you know Greenspan was this creepy guy 65 years old, unmarried, telephones his mother every day. Isn't this a bit like Norman Bates from the Hitchcock movie Psycho? And so he was really playing dirty uh, in a slightly less effective and almost sort of pathetic way. Um, Treasury Secretary Nick Brady tried to put pressure on Greenspan by disinviting him from Washington A-list parties. He said to his uh, assistant, uh, whoosh, bang, stop, we'll freeze him out, and as if this would make a difference to monetary policy, uh, just not being invited to parties. So um, they tried to put pressure on Greenspan, and he, at this point, proved himself um, very tough, stood up to political pressure, de defended the independence of the Fed. And I think that's the moment when people understand the lesson that beating up on the Fed, which had been the norm, I mean, the story we've just discussed about Nixon attacking Arthur Burns, was extreme, but it wasn't out of the typical pattern. I mean, presidents just did beat up on central bank chairs. I think that resistance by Greenspan in 1991-92 to George H.W. Bush taught the world a lesson such that when Bill Clinton came in, from the get-go, he resolved not to attack Greenspan in public. And that is when American central bank independence, which was not legislated, but it kind of evolved. It evolved thanks to Greenspan and to his toughness in that first Bush administration. So 
speaking of Clinton, and there's fortunately due to time constraints, we can't cover the, the entire gamut of, of Greenspan's life and career, although I will say there's a lot of other interesting stuff in the period between Nixon and George H. W. Bush that's that's in the book that's worth reading. But speaking of Clinton, one of the things that's that's sort of interesting here is that there's this there's this perception that Clinton was a very savvy politician, a great manipulator. His advisors were very good manipulators and, and figuring out what was where the public pulse was and how to get people to do what they wanted. You make a pretty compelling case that actually Greenspan outclassed them uh, in a pretty serious way and essentially I wouldn't say tricked is sort of a strong word, but by the, but a lot of the, the language that he used about expectations and bond markets and budget deficits might not have been backed up by data, strictly speaking, at least based on what the Fed staff was saying, but nevertheless led to some serious changes in actual fiscal policy. Um, you know, elaborate what, what sure. happened? Sure. I mean, um, you know, fiscal dominance had been the longstanding terror of central banks, the idea that, you know, the uh, the the government would run big budget deficits and then just expect the Fed to de facto monetize them. Um, but in any case, that that there was nothing the Fed could do to really push the uh, fiscal authority into running a sensible budget policy. Volcker had tried to testify in Congress along these lines. He had been beaten up. So the giant, the sort of Churchillian hero of central banking, got nowhere. Right, the Reagan budget deficits were appalling. Uh, and so that showed the limits of Fed power. Greenspan, on the other hand, forced first George H.W. Bush into a tax hike, breaking his own election pledge and again setting himself up for losing the election. He then did the same thing with Clinton, right? He basically taught Clinton into giving up some of his campaign promises and said, Mr. President, if you cut the budget deficit by running a tighter fiscal policy, you will find you will be rewarded in the bond markets. Long rates will fall. It'll stimulate the economy. You will be reelected down the road. You know, things are going to look good. I mean, he wasn't too, you know, he didn't quite say you'll be reelected, but he was, that was the implication. And Greenspan therefore got the sort of, you know, two presidents in a row to change their budget policy in a, in a, in a more responsible direction. And I think it's this political skill that, that really, is the surprise takeaway for me about Greenspan. How did Greenspan, first of all, create Fed independence? It's because he was very political. And to beat back the politicians, you had to be a politician yourself. You had to know how to wield power, and you had to be not afraid to do that. And Greenspan did this to create Fed independence. He did this to force the budget authorities into being responsible. And this empowered him then to run a monetary policy, because fiscal policy was tighter, monetary policy could be looser and he could be the benevolent maestro. Right. And it's funny because during this period, I guess it's from, was it the beginning of 1993, basically in the course of 92, 93, you have the long-term interest rates go down tremendously. And Greenspan said in part, it was because, oh, there's this fiscal discipline from DC. It must be it. Fed research actually said, no, <laughs> um, it's not. And uh, you know that sort of leads into the, the interesting pattern of 1994, I mean that's a that's a really sort of fascinating story. The build up to that because it sort of mimics, in some ways, what the debate is now, where rates had been low for a very long time. In the aftermath of a credit bust, people worried about financial stability, but you had a very weak jobs recovery, and then they move very quickly, and all sorts of interesting things happen. So, can you give us kind of a little bit of a flavor of of how that debate was going on at that time, and why nineteen four was sort of a surprise for people when they were doing it? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree that um, the echoes of today are very very strong. So there's this. 
amazing moment in late 93 when the head of um, statistics and research at the Fed, Mike Prell, shows up at the uh, FOMC meeting and tells the Fed's leadership that the reason long rates have fallen is not that inflation expectations have come down or that the budget uh, is now tighter. It's basically that uh, short rates have been very low and it's kind of conditioned the markets into expecting lower for longer. Does that phrase ring a bell now? Uh, and that the power of the central bank, therefore, over long rates is bigger than the central bank realized, uh, which is, again, another reason why when we get to that conundrum in the 2000s and people are blaming the uh, savings glut from China, it's not that simple. Actually, the central bank has the power to influence longer rates if it wants to and if it, if it, if it is determined to do so. And so in 93, the message from the staff was, look, you don't realize how powerful you are. If, if, these rates, uh, if these long rates are very low, it's because you've been running short rates very, very low for a long time. Once you begin to hike the short rate, therefore, by extension, it's going to shock people. And that long rate is going to rise faster than you expect. And basically, people just ignored this. I mean, Mike Prell presented the evidence. He was viciously attacked by the Fed vice chairman at the time who said, that's absurd, you know, long rates affect are a reflection of inflation expectations. You're telling me that traders of 10-year bonds are idiots, that they're irrational, they're just looking at the short rate, that's absurd. And Mike Pearl said, well, look, I've done the model. And I mean, they had this really personal... That vice chairman, if I'm correct, went on to be one of the big guys at long-term capital management, right? Is yes, that... and we know what happened right. to long-term capital management. Right. So um, there was David Mullins. So you're right. So that moment um, of the Fed staff, you know, having this pretty personal and vicious altercation in the committee is, I think, a relevant moment for today. And then in 1994, what happened is the Fed did raise the short rate. And lo and behold, the bond market freaked out. And you had this hurricane Greenspan, this moment when, um, you know, all kinds of uh, bond traders blew up. Michael Steinhardt, famous hedge fund guy, uh, is the way I tell this story in my book, because um, I happen to know that story very well from writing about hedge funds in the past. But his, you know, having had a fantastic run since the 70s, Steinhardt completely blew up in 1994 because of this sudden bond market convulsion, uh, which nobody at the Fed, apart from the research staff, but the leadership and Greenspan didn't expect. It's the other big topic that most people, I think, believe that Greenspan was prescient and correct, but you kind of make some interesting arguments that maybe he actually made a mistake, is the way the Fed responded to the massive increase in productivity in the second half of the 1990s in technology. The standard narrative is basically that the Fed avoided tightening too quickly, too early, because Greenspan in particular realized that there wasn't a threat of inflation that would have been implied from the unemployment rate. So people like Janet Yellen, for example, were worried that unemployment at 5 9% would be inflationary and wanted to raise rates in 95, 96. Greenspan said, no, this isn't going to be a constraint. You make a pretty interesting argument in the book, and it ties in, I think, pretty nicely to the research that Greenspan did in the 50s, that even though consumer price inflation wasn't an issue, in fact, it ran below any kind of reasonable measure of, your, of the Fed's target in the second half of the 1990s, it's reasonable to conclude the Fed may have been too loose in that period because of uh, what was going on with asset price, what was going on with globalization, technological change. I'm wondering, A, to what extent like you really think that they could have done something meaningfully different from what they did. And related to that, if they had done something different, 
Um, what would sort of the early 2000s have looked like? Because I feel like a lot of the discussion there, and this is resonance getting a long question, but a lot of discussion there is that the the tech bust was supposedly mild, but and it showed the Fed could clean up after a bubble. But the reason it was mild in part, because as we started this interview, is because the Fed uh, was very loose. And some of that looseness flowed through in a lot of unsustainable behaviors in terms of borrowing and house price and so forth. So I mean, I feel like that again, this this ties all right back into the very beginning of, of what Greenspan's life and career. So I mean, how 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 would you sort of put all this together and, and say like what what would younger Greenspan have, have might have thought or done in that kind of situation? Well, there's a lot in that question. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, the ninety-six productivity call was a great moment for Greenspan. That's, you know, I think in his own mind, that was his greatest uh, single moment as Fed chairman. He was against the consensus and he was right about what was going on with productivity. It did follow that, you know, consumer price inflation pressure was not going to be as high as people expected. Therefore, he could be looser in that sense that inflation was going to be fine. I think, therefore, running policy a bit looser in 96 was probably fine. 97 is probably fine. But then you get into the later phase of the technology boom in 98, 99. And then it ceases to be fine, in my view, because uh, asset prices are really taking off in a crazy way. And the, the really crunch moment about, uh, for this is, is that after the, um, the, the collapse, uh, the, the Russian default and the collapse of long-term capital management in, first of all, August for Russia of 1998, and then a month or so later um, for long-term capital management, the Fed cut interest rates no fewer than three times uh, to protect the markets from the downside fallout. And then it didn't take back those cuts. It just left them there, took them back very, very slowly. Uh, I think the last take back might have been late 99. And this was just a ridiculously slow correction of a loosening that was maybe a fair response for one or two cuts. Perhaps one cut was good after LTTM, two debatable, three way over the line, but they're not taking them back was the big mistake. And I think the larger error is not so much the productivity call. It, the error is only looking at inflation as the signal for when you need to tighten and not looking at asset prices at all. I think in his career, Greenspan had two moments when you know employment was basically full, inflation was under control, but it was not below target, and asset prices were going nuts. And he should have prioritize the targeting of those asset prices. These moments are basically early 99 and secondly, 2005, when real estate was the big problem. Uh, and because Greenspan didn't raise in response to this runaway asset price behavior, you get the tech bubble, which then bursts in 2000, and then you get the big real estate bubble, which bursts just after Greenspan leaves office. Maybe the last thing to say is, you know, address your question of the toxic nature of the NASDAQ bust, because I think that is something where the standard story I just don't share. The standard story is it was not a leverage bubble. Stock market bubbles are fine. You can leave them to blow up fine. You can just, you know, clean up afterwards because it's not like a credit bubble. It's not leveraged. Yeah, up to a point. But actually, Fed policy responding to that asset price bust in technology had to be extremely loose, extremely aggressive, and self-consciously inflate real estate prices as a way of counteracting the loss of demand produced by the collapse in investment 
after the Nasdaq bubble burst. And so I think if you're worried about the credit bubble in 2006, 7, 8, which of course everyone is, it's illogical and inconsistent to be complacent about the Nasdaq bubble because it was the it was the monetary uh, medicine after Nasdaq that created the credit bubble. Uh, and I do think that given that Greenspan was the person who wrote that 1959 paper in which she laid out the danger of uh, frothy asset markets and what it would do to the cycle, it is massively ironic that the man who knew the danger of asset bubbles allowed all this to happen. Thanks very much for coming. Matt, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Hey, everyone. This is Cardiff Garcia again back in the New York studio. Thanks to Matt and to Sebastian for that great interview. Send us an email with feedback to alphachatterbox at ft.com. You can also call us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number, so plus one country code if you are overseas. Leave a review, rate the show on iTunes. Please do this. It really does help people find us. Finally, show notes and links to what we've discussed will be at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Matt will be posting that on Friday morning. And finally, you can find Matt on Twitter. He's at M underscore C underscore Klein. Sebastian is at SC Malaby. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks as always to our amazing editor, Amy Keene producer and editor of this podcast and thanks to our listeners we'll be back with a regular edition of alpha chat next week we'll see you then